In this episode of In the Open, we bring you a conversation with James Snell. We will be discussing a variety of topics, including Node.js, Node.conf Remote, LF Public Health, and COVID Green. We will also discuss James's career path through IBM, Nearform, and now Cloudflare. Before we welcome our guest, let's say hello to my co-host, Joe Seppi. Hey, Luke. How are you, my friend? How's the weather over there? I am doing well, Joe. The weather here is fine. Not too hot. Definitely not cold. Is there like a tornado warning or something? I was reading about this last night. Are you worried at all? You're close uh, to the water. That's a good question. I did see that there was some rain in the forecast. I did not see a tornado uh, warning. But I did see this. This was quite alarming. In Greenland, on top of the ice sheets, I guess, two miles up for the first time ever since there have been a National Science Foundation station there, they've had rainfall. So normally it never rains there. They said in itself is not a, a big disaster, but it's obviously not a great sign of things to come. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, the weather is decent here. That's nice. Got a little bit of sunshine. Let's find out how the weather is on the West Coast and ask our guest, James Snell. Let's bring him in. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you, James? How's the weather over there? It is hot and smoky. Uh, yeah. We're getting, the, we're getting all the smoke from the Dixie Fire and some of the other fires just coming right down here. And I think yesterday it was about, a, yeah, a little over 100 degrees. Yeesh. Um, Yeesh. So nice and warm. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're in the middle of California, right? Yep. Right smack in the middle, uh, just outside of Fresno. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck out there. I think you were saying before, like, uh, you don't trust air. You can't chew or something. What was yeah, it? Yeah. Out here, you, you, you definitely can't trust air. You can't <laughs> taste and chew. And every summer out here, it's been the same thing. Just the smoke hanging in the air. So, yeah, that's tough. We, we got a little taste of it out here on the East coast. I think it was from Canadian wildfires, but been getting public air alerts and stuff. It'd definitely be good to get some of that rain here. If you can send it out our way, it'd be fantastic. It would be. Quite yeah, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks for joining us, James. Happy to have you here. I thought, you know, we've known each other for a while. I joined IBM uh, on the Strong Loop team. And I remember the first time that I came across your name was when I was joining the Strong Loop team, reading a thread on GitHub, a very long thread that kept me up late at night trying to, to really understand uh what was going on. And you were very patient and really navigated the situation pretty well. But maybe we could talk about your career path and where you started and where you've been. I know you you know, were at IBM and, and uh, yeah. some other places. Let's get into that. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I was at, at IBM for 16 years. So it was long run. Started there March 2001. So yeah, going way back. Did all kinds of things there. I started in, in the emerging technologies group and was working on all of the SOAP and the, the WS Star, WS Security Star, everybody. But I did work on that. Contributed to that mess. Switched over to working over in the CIOs group for a while. Helped get blogs and wikis and all that kind of stuff launched within IBM. One of the, the really fun things we did there, took about a week. We, we did the first draft of the social media guidelines you know, and oh. kind of that policy, right? Yeah. Another guy that was there, Dave Berger, I think he's over at Wells Fargo now, but he and I put this idea together and said, let's not draft it ourselves. Let's have the company draft it and let's open it up. It was the, the first time that IBM Legal let a policy document be drafted by the employees. Mm. And, and we did wow. it in a week and, and got those published and we became one of the very first examples of a corporate social media policy and um, a guideline, you know, we published it publicly. It, it was amazing, but it was only about a week's worth of work. Wow. So I did that for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I've read that documentation, and it's interesting to think that you were there at the beginning. Uh, one of the things I love about being at IBM is I've been here for five years, and I still feel like a baby. Like That's just such a short time for most IBMers. So it's funny to be here 16 years from you. I didn't know it was that long. It's great. Yeah, it was a good run. Yeah. And so what were you doing beforehand? Before IBM, so I was with this tiny little custom app developer system integrator in Central California. I had eight employees, but all of our customers were large enterprises. And there was this one in particular that I was working on, working for their, their large multinational manufacturer. And they had basically outsourced their intranet to us to manage and develop them. Uh, and I can name Things were significantly less complicated <laughs> back then. We're talking 20 plus years ago. They had outsourced the test run and we had, I was writing an asset document management system for them. This was 1999. And the, the thing I really like about this is it was right about when the XML HTTP request was introduced as this new experimental thing in, in Internet Explorer. And Microsoft had put it out there and they were telling everybody, don't use this in production. So the first thing we did, of course, was use it in production. And, and this, for me, I love it because it was actually one of the very first examples of an Ajax style application where we were mm -hmm. you know, using this to request data in the back end, separating it from the, from the rendering of the town kind of the rendering and the visualization. But that was in 1999. I mean, Ajax, what the term wasn't coined, I think, until probably about you know, four or five years later. Yeah. But um, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But that was what I was doing before, and that's actually what led me directly to IBM. That's cool. I can imagine my first thought goes to, okay, so IE had it. Did Netscape have it yet? Did you have to write some conditionals and the old days of having to write something for two browsers and, yeah. No, unfortunately, they had a, a, a company standard. Everybody had to be on IE, okay. so... Didn't have to worry about that. That's good. So. Yeah, I, 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 my thought was to like talk through your career trajectory, but I wonder actually if talking about Node, Node.js, if that would be would take us through that career trajectory regardless. So maybe we can we'll talk about that. And one of the things that comes to mind, I was, I was mentioning that thread, and just I think Node's history is fairly well known, but to just touch on it briefly, you know, the fork of IOJS and the community really getting behind that. And I imagine a lot of companies being concerned about that sort of situation. And, and I know that we, IBM, were focused on trying to help there. What was your experience? I, I imagine um, that was kind of an interesting time. Yeah. So yeah, this is 2014. IBM was really looking to start getting involved with investing in, in, in Node platform, but because of all these community issues and stuff, and all the drama that was happening, it wasn't a safe investment. And there was a lot of conversations that were happening behind the scenes where IBM was you know, trying to guide the project in the direction of, hey, a foundation is actually the, a good place for this. It'll help deal with all of these ownership issues and, and these kinds of things. But it was difficult. While the conversations were happening, but the, the community decided to go ahead and fork right in the middle of it, and just kind of threw a monkey wrench in the in, in all of this all the conversations. So, so, so let me just get that correct. So there, there was a conversation about the foundation first, and then the fork. It was in parallel. Ongoing. Yeah, it was in parallel while the community frustration was building. You know, IBM was over here having conversations with Joint and stuff, and say, hey. You know, this yeah. might be a better path to go. When it was clear that the fork was going to be a thing, my management at the time had remembered that back in 2013, I opened a pull request on Node. <laughs> All right. And it, that experience wasn't a great experience. That's a, that's a whole other story. But it, it was like the this, hey, James, you did something with Node once, right? I'm like, yeah. Okay, we have a job for you. <laughs> 
and the job was essentially to become the technical lead for everything IBM was doing with Node. And the first task was essentially go to Node, go to IOJS, and figure out how to bring them back together, essentially fix it. And so for majority of 2015 was me getting involved with the project, you know, getting myself visible and known, actively contributing so that I could help guide the project through the process. And part of that was having, you know, weekly meetings with, with the folks that joined to make sure their concerns were being addressed. Part of that was, you know, helping draft the governance documents and the first versions of the governance documents for the foundation, Put, figuring out the path for, okay, we had these two different code bases now. How are we going to move forward with those? Ultimately, it ended up being that the IOGS fork is what we actually took off with. And, and what, what Node is today is actually from IOGS itself, or from that forked uh, branch. Well, you know, a lot of 2015 was just was just that. And then once we got that launched, it became, let's work on the processes that caused the problems in the first place, right? And this attitude of, oh, no, it's done. It doesn't need anything new. Anytime a new contributor would come to the project, it was automatic. No, that API is locked. Node is done. I was actually yelled at by one of the, uh, the core contributors at the time, like, like actually physically in person yelled at because I was daring make changes to some stuff. And it was just, you know, it was, I don't think people realize that's the kind of unfriendly attitude that caused the fork in the first place. And we needed to break that culture. So I very intentionally started this process of giving very liberal code reviews. I would look at it and like, yep, yeah, good idea. Let's do it. Oh, I guess I better go look at the code to see if there's bugs. It was this saying yes first, and eventually we got there. I think the project has evolved into a much, much better state today. Yeah, I agree. And we still have our challenges, of course, more community-driven and people can get involved. And one of the things that I like about the approach that has developed over the years is this real like open source methodology, whatever you want to call it, approach. And so like sometimes I'll be looking around through GitHub and trying to find something, whatever the case may be, and I'll stumble across an issue with Michael Rogers or somebody talking about the TOC and the way back in the day. And should we do this? I found the the issue about whether we should be in the foundation, create a foundation or not. It's great to read through that stuff. And it's still all right there for everybody to, to, to dig into. It's really interesting. Yeah, anyone that is looking to create a community around a large open source project really should go back and read that history of what Node went through and what we did. And, and there are painful parts. Of it. There are parts of it that were very painful and very hard to go through. But it really, I think, serves as a, as a great case study for mm -hmm. how do we work ourselves out of this community drama? Nobody's trusting each other. Everybody's just kind of fighting. To we have something that is growing actively. The contributors are happy, right? The community is engaged and we're making progress. I think it's really important to, to talk through that because I think a lot of folks, or we all want to avoid pain and avoid conflict, but I love yeah. that we get to unpack that on this show and talk about how the, the proverbial sausage was made. It's going back to that, the thing of the thread you mentioned at the beginning. And yeah, so it was, this is just an example. And I'm not going to go into all the details and stuff on it, but Express. Express has had an interesting history. It's still super popular. It's a fantastic package. Among all the contributors that have kept it going, kept it alive, done a fantastic job. But Doug Wilson really does deserve a huge amount of credit for keeping that thing going. Well, when IBM bought Strongloop, right, there was this question of what's going to happen with Express. IBM's interest wasn't to own Express. And it just kind of got caught up in that the acquisition and, and stuff like that. And there was never a decision that it, 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 I'd be saying, hey, what are we going to do with this? But Doug and others were like, hey, 
do you mind if we just take this over? And it ended up being a very difficult conversation because the future of Express really was up in the air. And there was some politics between multiple different companies and, and, and all this kind of stuff. It's not worth going into, but you know, it was painful. There were, there were times as we were jumping on the phone and having these conversations that were just really hard to get through. But in the end, it got out there to the community. It, it's a community project. It belonged with the community and, and we got the right result. It's out there. Yeah, and I remember particularly reading through that thread, and you you really did, did a good job at remaining level-headed and calm and trying to project that outward. But the community, and, and I think society in general, really wants something right away. Like, they just want to, this yeah. needs to be solved, and it has to be done yesterday. And I've worked at IBM and other big companies, and stuff takes time. Just to even get a meeting to talk to somebody may take a week or more. And I just remember you keep saying, give me like two weeks, and I'll respond back to tell you what, but but our goal is to get this in the community. Please be patient. And like five minutes later, what's going on with this? What, how come? You know, it's just like, yep. so yep. balancing the community and the corporate is a challenge, but I'm glad it worked out and did end up in the community and things did work out as you were asking them to be patient for it to happen. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people will forget that it's like, yes, you have the big corporation, but we're still just people and the corporation. Yes. Legally it can be counted as an entity, it's a person, but it, but it, it doesn't have an intent. It goes down to the individual people. You're working with the individual people. Now there may be a culture and stuff you're dealing with, but in this case, it wasn't IBM against the community, right? Yeah. It was, no, we're just, IBM was still trying to figure out what it had bought with yep. <laughs> strong yep. and figure out how to assimilate this and how to, how to, what everyone was going to be doing. Literally nobody had thought about Express, right? Until I raised it, it was like, oh, wait a second, what's going on here? Yeah. And, and, and we had to have you know, a couple conversations where we were educating the executives on, oh no, this, there's a whole issue here brewing. And as soon yeah. as they found out there was an issue, they're like, okay, do it, go take care of it. Yeah. That's so interesting. I love stories like this too, because from the outside and like the general impression we get of big companies is that they are very impersonal and you get lost in them and don't have an identity. But actually, because there's so much specialization and leadership can't really know about all these things, there's actually a lot of opportunity through open source and and through these issues that you're mentioning to really differentiate yourself and, and be a thought leader. Yeah, uh, that, and that's exactly it. And, and, and people need to realize that for the most part, companies don't have interest in trying to own parts of the community. They want to influence it, right? You know, the, the, and you'll have some that go in there and say, okay, this is our thing. We own this, whatever else, but it's not necessarily in their best interest. For me, it's a very important view of open source. If a company goes in saying, we own, this is our thing, we're going to make decisions that are only in our benefit, then whatever that thing is, it's just going to die, right? Uh, because no one else is going to care. But if they approach it from the point of we want to do what's good for the community, and if the stuff that they are doing actually is for the good of the community, and they're putting their commercial interest second to that, then, you know, it, it seems cliche, but the whole rising tide raising all ships, that's true. That actually does happen, especially with open source. So make decisions that are good for the community before good for your company, and it'll come back around to you. Yeah, Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Cool. So maybe what? So that's the beginning of your work in Node. What What does it look like beyond that? What What are some of the highlights of uh, stuff you've been doing there? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, my work at you know IBM on Node led me to to Nearform, which is this unexpected company out in you know Ireland. They're headquartered in some tiny little town in on the southern um, Irish coast. You would not expect whatsoever. Um, 
Absolutely fantastic company. They they're primarily a services company, so they go out and they do a bunch of you know custom applications and in, in support of those kind of things for a lot of customers. That they last out like twenty four different countries and one hundred and eighty people, and so it's great. What they basically wanted me to do is pay me to work on Node. They really embraced this attitude of we are getting a lot of benefit from open source, so we need to invest in in supporting it and driving it forward. So that was basically my job there is to was just to contribute to Node and do some consulting work. And that. what that allowed me to do is it freed me up to work on a lot of the stuff that we've seen in, in Node. So you have the URL parser and the HP2 implementation and web crypto. Uh, more recently, the web, the WebWG streams implementation. A lot of these larger things that have been added to Node in the past couple of years are largely because for the longest time, I think I was probably one of the only core contributors that was paid to work on Node full time. Right. It wasn't like a secondary thing or part time thing. That was my primary responsibility. So it really freaked me up to do all kinds of work on that platform. So, yeah, my fingerprints are all over stuff. I like to instigate things. So I'll write the initial implementation and really encourage other folks to come in and take off with it. Tongue in cheek, I'll say I'll add the bugs and then encourage other people to come fix them. That's a great approach, though, right? That's an easy way for people to get involved. Here, I'll get it started. You take it from here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so we've got a lot of change things in there. Now, here recently, I started conversations with the with Cloudflare. There's an opportunity to go help evolve the Cloudflare Workers platform and not only evolve the platform itself, but evolve its connection with the ecosystem, you know, the ecosystem of NPM modules and Node and Deno and how it relates to all of those things. So, yeah, so I decided to, to go ahead and switch over. And it's a, there's, there's some exciting stuff. I can't talk about it yet, what we're doing, but you know, there's going to be some fun stuff coming. Very cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm eager to hear more about it. I thought this is random, but what's your take on WASM? And is that kind of into the work you're doing? Uh, oh, yeah, it's directly with, with a lot of work I'm doing. I, I, I do like WASM. I think it holds a, a lot of promise. If some people are like, okay, this is the answer to whatever problem. And I think it is overhyped to, to a degree, but I think it, it is an extremely useful tool. The WASI interface, the, the you know, basically web, WebAssembly system interface, and that is providing that lower level syscall type functionality holds a lot of promise, but needs to has a ways to go before it's there. It's missing quite a few things that someone would need, but it, you know it's there. It, it's coming along, yeah, and it's going to be exciting to see what people do with it. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I feel like there are a few technologies out there that are still there's a lot of hype, and I think there's potential. We just got to get there. Yeah. Cool. Luke, do you want to take a moment and promote the, the stuff? So first off, I want to say thank you for everyone who's tuning in live. If you have any questions for James, please drop them in the chat on whatever platform you're listening on, and we'll get to them later in the show. If you happen to be catching this as a replay on a podcast, in the show notes, we'll have all of our Twitter handles. Feel free to drop any questions you have to us asynchronously on social media, and we can answer any questions you have later. And now this show, In the Open with Luke and Joe, you can always find it on ibm.biz forward slash in the open. We'll always embed the latest episode at the top so you can watch it there or you you know catch it on your streaming platform of choice. We will also publish it later as a podcast so you can catch it on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, a uh, bunch of places. And besides this show, we have a variety of podcasts on IBM Developer. We just launched Z Platform Talks. We have uh, Z DevOps Talks. We're about to launch a data and AI podcast again. So we've got a bunch of stuff going on that's uh, really exciting. Subscribe on your listening platform of choice. You can always find it here too at developer.ibm.com forward slash podcasts. 
And then developer.ibm.com, you can find a whole variety of media, right? So I work with a bunch of great writers and editors and, and folks making videos. So we've got a, a bunch of learning paths and code patterns and all kinds of things on IBM developers. So please check out what we have there. Smash the like and subscribe button wherever you see it. Uh, this maybe is a good time too to just uh, touch on your podcast, James. Yep, yep, yep. OpenHive.js, we, we we launched this at, at Nearform last year, Matteo, Kalina, and I, and a co-hosted. We are on a slight pause right now while we retool the format a little bit, All right, especially now that, I, that I've moved over <laughs> to Clapper. I'm no longer at Nearform. So we're going to make some changes to, to the format and how we go, but it, it's been fantastic. We've been having some really great conversations with a number of guests from around the, the JavaScript ecosystem and just keeping it informal, just chat, see see what's on their minds and go from there. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a really good podcast. I recommend folks to uh, check that out as well. Let me see. There's a comment in here. Since we just talked about this, I'll throw this up here and see if you have any thoughts on this. Oh, it's Brian. <laughs> okay. Uh, but still. Yep. I'll say yes. I can see a feature for this. The WASI system interface has to has to evolve a bit more. There's a lot of stuff it just doesn't do. And a lot of stuff it doesn't do efficiently enough. You get a lot of performance loss depending on what you're doing. An example of one of the things that's missing right now are the the ability to open a, a, a TCP connection or UDP connections, right? So you have the net subsystem in Node Core. We wouldn't be able to implement it as is on top of WebAssembly and WASI simply because those system calls don't exist yet in, in, in the WASI definition. Now, there's an open pull request. Uh, you know, if you go to the WASI, get every book. But it's been open for a while. It's not clear when it's going to land. It's not, what changes are going to be. I've thought about implementing it for Node, but it's going to be a moving target. So eventually, yes, we might get there. Would, would I like to see it? I think there's a lot of good possibility there. It would help us out in workers, uh, Cloudflare workers, which we don't have these system APIs, right? If we could just drop in a WebAssembly module, then here's a node's net, net module. That'd be fantastic. It would really improve interrupt for sure. But I think we're a long ways away. Interesting. Thanks for the question. Yeah, hello, Brian. <laughs> so I would love to hear more about the Linux Foundation Public Health Foundation initiative. Yep. yep. What's, uh, yeah. what's been going on there and what's your involvement? Uh, yeah, so Linux Foundation Public Health is a you know kind of a sub-organization under uh, Linux Foundation. It was organized as a home for open source public health related projects. And it, it was launched specifically because of COVID-19. We had a number of, of projects that you have COVID Green, which is the open source project that Nearform created for doing digital contact tracing, exposure notifications. You have some projects out there that are trying to build a, a digital vaccine certificate where you get like a QR code on your phone, you scan it, and, and it's proof whether or not you've been vaccinated or not, that kind of thing. So there's, so there's a lot of a lot of these open source projects out there, and they really didn't have much of a home, right? You know, there wasn't a, a place for them to go where they weren't just tied to just a, a single company's commercial strategy and that kind of thing. What we wanted was a place where, no, here's a neutral home. Here's where these things could exist, not just on a national level, but on a global level, where these products could grow and evolve, have a safe place 
And then, so the Lynx Foundation Public Health was launched. Now, my involvement was you know, specifically because at Nearform, COVID Green became one of the, the the founding projects for this. And so it was donated there. And I joined what's called the Technical Advisory Committee. They basically provide a liaison role between the projects and the board and the foundation board. The TAC is responsible for deciding which projects come in, what the process is, what those projects have to do in order to maintain their status as a LFPH project, that kind of thing. And to provide some kind of mentorship and guidance to the projects, because some of these are coming from companies that have no experience with open source at all, or dealing with public health agencies that like have no concept of where the technologies are at or, or where they're going. So it provides that liaison role there. I was elected as the chair of the TAC, the Technical Advisory Committee, uh, for this year, and will be serving uh, until the end of my term in December. So obviously, there's been a lot of work done there already, but this is still ongoing. What's in the near future for the work that's going on there? So all all of the work so far has been geared towards addressing the acute crisis of of COVID-19. If you look at like the exposure notification, these are the apps that you can install on your phone. And if you're within like 15 feet or uh, 20 feet of, of another user that also has that app, the phones exchange keys, you go off on your way. It doesn't exchange any other information, it's just like this random key that's exchanged. And then later on, if I test positive, I can hit a button in there and it lets everyone else know that my phone came in contact with within the past two weeks. It'll let them know that they may have been exposed. It doesn't tell them who, it doesn't tell them where. They don't get any of the information. It just says, okay, you may have had exposure. You might want to go get a test. And that's been the whole kind of exposure notification thing. It, and that's where we've been putting the majority of our focus of that and the, the infrastructure around the digital vaccine certifications. So far, that's everything that, that LFPH has been working on. And it's all designed toward how do we manage the current crisis and try to get a handle on things as they are right now. But the LFPH's broader mission is not just COVID-19. It's providing a home for open source that affects the whole range of public health issues in support of public health authorities and these agencies worldwide. You know, so there's challenges with data sharing, particularly like here in the U.S., where every state has its own health authority. You might have county or city level health authorities. And what it turns out is very little information is shared between all these different authorities. I think we've all had the experience, you know, I'm not sure internationally uh, how internationally true it is, but here in the U.S., you fill out a form online to make an appointment. You go to the office and you have to provide all the exact same information on, on form. And then maybe when you go pick up your uh, your medications, you have to fill out the information again, right? Every provider you have to fill this in. It's because they're not sharing information around. The systems don't exist. It, it's not that it sounds like they're just not doing it. It's the actual infrastructure for sharing that information does not exist and it still needs to be built. And ideally that be built in an open source way where this information can flow. But also ideally there has to be privacy protections there, there. The security has to be there. And it's really hard to ensure those things if you're not doing it in an open source, transparent way. So that's really what the Linux Foundation wants to do with LFPH, but we have a ways to get there. We have to get past this current acute crisis before we can really start building out the rest of that. That's so interesting. And what comes to mind when you say this, it's like before open source, science was already having this idea of publishing white papers and presenting. And so it's like they have the sort of foundation of how open source works, like a similar pattern. And then but they don't necessarily have the mechanics to apply it or the knowledge of the technology. So it's interesting how it's like this layers and evolution and how we're maybe like even 
giving back to the forefathers. I want to say it's like standing on the shoulder of giants type thing, but we're able to pull them up. Well, it really goes back also to just pure politics. So public health agencies, they are government organizations. They are you know, subject to the whims of budget proposals. And, and when your budgets are being drafted by elected officials, you have this kind of winds of change thing that, that happens. So right now, because of COVID, the public health agencies, they're getting a ton of cash. Go take care of this. Go fix this. But as soon as that's no longer the issue, as soon as, soon as that's not the acute crisis of the day, that funding is going to disappear and all that focus and attention is, is going to go away. So how can we maintain a healthy, robust, evolving technology strategy if we have no idea if we're going to have even have any budget at all to do so next year? Right. Well, two years from now. So it makes it really challenging. The other part of that is public health agency, rightfully so, they're focused on health crises. They're not focused on, hey, should we use Kubernetes and Node or Go, right? They, they don't care about that stuff. And, you know, so it, it's a lot of complexity. It's not that the ideas aren't out there. It's not that people don't know the right thing to do. It's that they may not have the money to do it or it may not be what they're focused on. I have a suggestion. This is something else from the enterprise. I think we should have a mandatory education and like badging system. Just like we have to, you know, oh, I've got to do my uh, cybersecurity training again this year. I've got to do my anti-bullying and sexual harassment training. I've got to skill up. Maybe in order to be a public official, you should have to have some sort of mandatory technology <laughs> training. You can't be calling the internet pipes. Trucks on the pipes. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's a fun area. It'd be nice. Now, I, I will say that in this process, I have met quite a few folks who are working at public health authorities around the world. And I have to say that just over this past year, they have been doing an absolutely amazing job of trying to, you know, keep this the flow of information and kind of balancing the technology options because they have companies coming at them and say, hey, is this technology right? You know, and they're getting this barrage of things. This will solve everything. And they're like, you know, wait, no, stop. And just in terms of the privacy protections, I know when a lot of these exposure notification apps are out there, people were immediately mistrusting. Oh, no, the government's going to collect all the information. No, it's been the governments that have been the strongest advocates of saying, we don't want that information. We don't want this to collect anything. We're not going to use you know, any of this private information. We only want the bits of information that help us deal with this COVID-19 crisis. That's all we want. And they have been the ones that have been really hammering hard at maintaining those privacy protections. So the health authorities, I mean, just globally, deserve a, a, a tremendous amount of credit and uh, thanks from all of us on helping to manage this crisis. Yes, thank you to them. Well, one thing that I'm has come to mind in this conversation is I wonder about, and this is maybe U.S. versus uh, EU and, and whatnot, but like in terms of building out platforms to facilitate these sort of health systems. I think of the banking APIs that I think in EU are much more standardized, and then you can do a lot more, whereas in the US, it's not the case. How do you see that playing out in terms of standardizing platforms and thinking about this from a health perspective? Yeah, I'm going to say sadly, because I'm coming at it from a U.S. perspective, sadly, it's exactly the same with public health infrastructure. Europe is 
much more open to collaborating cross borders, the sharing information, just, hey, let's build something that, that works. Now, I mean, there's some differences. So the French built a slightly different version than the Germans. And then, but, but at the same time, they're on the phone every week with each other, hashing it out. This is why we made this decision. And this is why we made this decision. And the focus then becomes on, great, we're going to do it differently, but we're still going to interrupt. And, and then the conversation becomes, how do they interrupt? Here in the U.S., we're still fighting, well, this state assembly made it illegal for us to even have this type of system. And, you know, and it's just very, very frustrating here in the U.S. just to break down the, the whole political culture that has been fostered over the past number of years has really made it difficult for us to address the, the technology issues adequately. Yeah, we've got big issues to solve. It would be great if we weren't fighting over stuff that's really not important. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> but Good times. LFP, LFPH is, 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 is definitely something to get involved with. If you are involved with, just call it to anybody. If it's, you're, it's an area that you're passionate about. If you want to find ways to contribute to, even just small ways to contribute to building this technology infrastructure to support public health, I, I, I definitely encourage folks to get involved. There, there's a couple of fantastic projects. One in particular, Project Herald. We just advanced it to stage three, which is, I won't go through all the, all, what all the stages mean, but Stage three is our banner head uh, projects. Those are the kind of the main ones. And Harold just got there. Harold is a digital contact tracing application similar to COVID green, except it is not based on the Google and Apple APIs that, uh, that they host and maintain. They've built an entire um, architecture. It's, it's independent of that. It's a fantastic project. Lots of opportunities to get involved. If folks are interested, have them reach out to me on Twitter and I can get them connected. And it is Harold, H-E-R-A-L-D. Yeah, I'll get the link for the uh, for the show notes. Yeah, I've got something here, but I don't know if it's the shortest one, but I'll add this in here, okay. the announcement. It, it, it originated uh, from, from VMware. That okay. done a fantastic uh, bit of work on it. They deserve a huge amount of credit on this. Oh, yeah, heraldprox.io. I'll drop that in there, too, for folks who want to check that out. Yeah, I would have had the link for you already, but I, you know, it just, it just popped in mind, so... <laughs> cool interesting that's a great suggestion for folks who are interested in getting more involved it kind of reminds me do you have any suggestions for folks who want to get involved in node.js for example yeah node.js i mean there's a thousand issues open there's pull requests that need reviewed the way i started you know, like going back to 2015 you know and i was told hey go help fix just i spent three months doing nothing but going through the issue tracker and finding open issues and we're like, okay, hey, what's what's going on with this? There was one day in particular I went through, I think a thousand issues in one day. And wow. for some of the Node Core contributors, that was their introduction to me as getting spammed by GitHub notifications. Like, and the, like who the hell is this James guy? You know, and it was just me going, hey, what's up with this? Has this been done? Right? Just go yep. through and doing some triage. It's yep. a fantastic way for people to get involved with the project. Go through the issue tracker and just find the old issues and say, hey, what's up with this? Maybe I can help get this finished. It's fantastic. Yeah. And folks, always free. I'm always happy to talk to new contributors. So folks can hit me up on Twitter and ask how to get involved. I'm happy to point in the right direction. Great. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I'm curious on a similar topic. We have this initiative happening right now called the next 10, the next 10 years of Node.js. We're, I guess, are we 11 now yet? I'm not sure. Close. And so what what does the next 10 years look like for Node.js? And that's something that people can get involved in. If you go to the github.com slash node and look for the next 10 repo, you can see when the meetings are and read the notes and the documentation that we're working through. It's an ongoing process. But I'm curious, what do you think? in terms of the next 10, what are some important things that you think that we should be working on in, in Node.js? Web platform, 
alignment is a key one. It's something I've been working on for the past couple of years now. And I think it needs to, I think it needs to progress. There will always be new node specific APIs added. There, there's always going to be a need to like, okay, we're going to add this thing that's only available in node. I would like us to minimize that going forward. If there is some piece of functionality that is not just specific to node, but hey, maybe Deno, Deno also needs it. Maybe browsers also need it. Maybe um, you know, Cloudflare Workers needs it. Maybe all these other JavaScript environments also do that type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Then we should be looking at common APIs, uh, standard APIs, that even if they're not entirely optimal for, for Node in every case, it still should be the priority and focus on, for us to deliver these standard APIs that developers can use across all the environments. WebStreams is a good example of this. Literally, no one wanted yet another stream API in Node, <laughs> right? Node Streams is a horrible, complex beast. Nobody enjoys maintaining it. I think fewer enjoy um, using it. And it's been there. But we added web streams. Why? Because that's where developers are. That's what they're using, right? And that's what they want. And there was this argument before. It's, no, it's not a browser. It shouldn't do all this stuff. And I mean, I'm like, yeah, that's... No, that's wrong. There is an overlap. You know, no, it's yep. not a browser, but it does some of the same things. And where it does the same things, we should be following the standards. So next 10, kind of my key goal is I want to see more emphasis on shared APIs, common approaches across all these different environments. I want to be able to go to Deno users and say, hey, you know what? It's going to work the same way in other environment. Deno has this module where they've basically emulated Node's API surface area. Why? That should not be necessary. You write to a common set of APIs that just work in both environments. And that's really what I want to see. That's interesting. I feel like over the last few years, it seems like Node folks have been more involved in ECMA's TC39 group, which standardizes the JavaScript language. And in fact, the last meeting I was at, I think I remember Ryan and Bert were there from Dino as well. Um, do you think, is that the place where we should be doing that work and, and things improving there? Some of it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely part of it. But W3C, what WG, there's other places where those APIs are, are being developed. Um, it might even be getting involved and contributing to the browser platforms. Go to Blink, go to Chrome, go to Firefox and, and work on those features there. What ends up happening a lot of times is that, and it's just because of history, a lot of these new APIs that emerge come out of the browser and then standardized and pushed out. Yes, I would like to see that come more out of the standards bodies and stuff being developed there. But if right now, if the way to influence the direction of those APIs is to contribute to the browsers, let's do that. Yep. So I think it's just a matter of getting involved where the work is happening. Mm -hmm. Now that makes a lot of sense. That sometimes drives where things, the standards follow that once things uh, shake out in, in those implementations. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. I know we're running out of time. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I know you have left Nearform and, and now we're at Cloudflare, but you're still involved with NodeConf, NodeConf Remote. Is that right? NodeConf Remote, NodeConf EU, yeah. So it, it, the primary sponsor for NodeConf EU, NodeConf Remote, has always been in your form. But it, they don't consider it a company event, all right? It's put on for the community. It's representative of the community. Like, like our number one rule is no product pitches. Like we will not accept a talk, even if it smells like a product pitch. And as I was, you know, looking at making this change to go to Cloudflare, you know, you know, I, you know, I stopped thinking about it. It's like, no, NodeConf, it, it's very important. It's very important to the community. There are very few 
node specific conferences left in the world. You know, node summit going away and what was node interactive becoming OpenJS world and having its broader focus. We really do need to maintain the community focused node events and node conf remote and node conf view is that's what it is and that's what we're going to maintain it. So yeah, so I'm going to remain as one of the co-organizers of that indefinitely. And I, I can't say for sure. I can't, I can't say for sure, but we 2022, we're looking at options for actually being able to do it in person again. Um, we went to NodeConf Remote because of COVID. The next year, we might actually be able to do it in person, and I'm hoping we'll be able to have an announcement about that soon. Oh, that would be amazing. I, I would be so excited. Um, yeah, and I agree with you. I think the Node Interactive kind of evolving as the foundation has grown and taken shape, that that is more of OpenJS world now, and it's a wider um, array of, I think that's a positive thing, but I think that you're right that really NodeConf.eu is is the only really Node-focused events, seemingly. So hopefully that changes and other folks spin up their, their own events and those grow and from the community and whatnot. We'll see. But yeah, I really hope that we get to meet in person again soon. Yeah, absolutely. The, the one other NodeConf out there that I know that they really want to get things going. So NodeConf Columbia, fantastic one. I really hope that they're able to um, make it back in person. And I'll, I'll say that when I went down, oh, geez, yeah, it was 99 that I went down. It was absolutely amazing down there. So highly recommend that one. Yeah, really fantastic people that run that too. They're, they're actually one of them, uh, two of them are my neighbors, Camilo and, and Catherine. I, we have one more question from Brian that we can throw up there. Let's see if we can uh, tackle this one. What, what do you think about this, James? Do, do incompatibilities in module systems make it harder to have that goal of code that's runnable in multiple JS environments? <laughs> Brian's probably smiling on his own. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, without question. Just the fact that the incompatibilities in the module system just by themselves are a major distraction. We end up having to deal with those before we can move on to the other things. And then oh, this stuff works differently in, in its different module systems. So we constantly have to be going back to dealing with those inconsistencies rather than the stuff that's running on top. Just that fact alone makes it really hard. I, I have my problems with ESM just from a technical, you know, my engineer geek hat on. I have a, a, a number of issues, but those, they're not relevant. It's where the standard is. We should just you know, I, I think we should just get away from common JS, focus on ESM, focus on WebAssembly, focus on the standards, move forward from there, and then start building good stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I, there's been a lot of, there has been a lot of conversation over the years about modules and the implementation. So is it, do I understand you correctly in what you just said that you are encouraging folks to use ESM? And I asked this partly because I saw somebody recently say, if you don't need those features, just stick with common JS, but you're of the mind to, just move, let's move forward, let's adopt it and make it better. Yeah, yeah, we need one. It goes back to the whole VHS versus beta, and I might be yeah, I'm dating myself here. <laughs> All the young kids, and they're like, what, what is he talking about? But, you know, back then, beta, beta was superior, but, it, you know, VHS won out, and we, we may be in that kind of situation here. Even if we don't think it's as good, we have to pick one, standardize, and move forward. Yeah, I had a beta max. It ended up in the trash eventually. I, I read an interesting post the other day, though, that while VHS won in that consumer market, it died out. And then Betamax still, it had this long life in professional production. It, it actually yeah. outlasted VHS, although it didn't rise as high. <laughs> <laughs> we'll sneak it in there. Yep. We'll sneak yep. it in there. 
Well, this has been a great uh, conversation, James. I really appreciate you coming to visit us and, and taking the time to to share your experience and, and your story. So thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Yeah, thank you, James. We'll definitely see you out and about in the, in the open source space. And good luck with everything at the new role. I'm, I'm excited to see uh, how things play out there. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, it, it, it's going to be fun. We're going to have some, some good stuff coming. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep my ear up. Cool. I guess that's a wrap. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And, and yeah, thanks again, James. And we'll talk more soon.